Hello, and welcome to Talking Opinions. I am Anthony Livingston Hall. When I began commenting on the deaths of famous people in 2008, the last thing I wanted was to contribute to our culture's perverse fascination with celebrities. In fact, I only began doing so on my blog as a lark to propagate the superstition that the deaths of famous people come in threes. But then famous people began dying in droves, which meant the morbid joke was on me. Sure enough, that was the case again last week. It's debatable whether the death of Pope Emeritus Benedict XVI or that of soccer legend Pele commanded the most media attention. But the outpouring of public eulogies to them effectively washed away public eulogies to others, like Vivienne Westwood, Franco Harris, and Barbara Walters. This, just as the outpouring of public eulogies to Michael Jackson, effectively washed away those to Farrah Fawcett and Ed McMahon, when they all died in the same week of June 2009. But what I found even more off-putting was the trend social media enabled. Because these somber occasions now move millions to tweet condolences that are intended only to draw attention to themselves. Nothing was more disingenuous in this respect than Brazilians hailing Pele on Twitter as their king after deeming him unfit to serve as their president. This is why I decided in 2012 to comment only on the deaths of famous people who made pioneering contributions to mankind or affected the lives of millions for good or ill. And so I wrote a blog tribute to Pele and I am now recording this podcast tribute to Benedict. There is no denying that, for most people, any mention of the Catholic Church these days brings to mind the institutionalized sexual abuse of children. And no Catholic personified this cardinal sin quite like Benedict himself. He reportedly lived a life of such doctrinal piety that he made his successor Pope Francis look like a heathen. More to the point, though, that piety made Benedict ideally suited to serve for twenty years as the Vatican's enforcer of the faith in his role as head of the Congregation of the Doctrine of the Faith. This meant that, even more than John Paul II, the Pope he served, Benedict steered the Catholic Church through some of the biggest controversies in its 2,000-year history. Those controversies had him grappling, most notably, 
with the long overdue day of reckoning for the damning legacy of priests sexually abusing children with impunity. But they also had Benedict enforcing doctrinal teachings against abortion, birth control, same-sex marriage, the ordination of women, and even Harry Potter novels. All the same, most Catholics would probably say the Church was blessed to have Benedict at the helm through those stormy seas. No doubt this is why his defenders and apologists are rushing to frame his legacy, based more on this theological role he played for twenty years as enforcer of the faith than on the pastoral role he played for eight years as Pope. Except that there is no denying or absolving the role Benedict played, not just in covering up the sexual abuse that now defines the Church, but in enabling that abuse. Because the only thing that would explain his dereliction of duty, if not complicity, is a religious belief that God granted priests a special dispensation to sexually abuse children. As it happens, I wrote about what will surely be the first charge on his scroll in Pope Benedict Accused of Harboring Pedophile Priest on March 16, 2010 because he did so while serving both in his theological role as enforcer of the faith and in his pastoral role as bishop of the diocese of Munich under the Christian name Joseph Ratzinger. And if all of that were not damning enough, this well-known paedophile continued his predatory sexual abuse of little boys, even while Ratzinger was harboring him. The irony is that this future Pope's own scandal provided clear and convincing evidence that the Vatican itself not only condoned, but actually enabled a culture of paedophilia that would make Sodom and Gomorrah seem chaste. Apropos of which, I also noted in that March 2010 commentary that, while serving as Pope, Benedict took pains to draw a moral distinction between homosexuality and paedophilia. This, of course, is a fair and often necessary distinction to make. But in making it, Benedict unwittingly granted papal indulgence for homosexuality, while censuring paedophilia. What's more, his distinction made a mockery of the Church's purported practice of clerical celibacy, which decrees abstinence from all sexual activity, including masturbation. Except that no less a person than Pope Francis has decried the homosexual cabals in the Vatican that have been indulging and covering up 
the serial sexual exploits of gay priests since time immemorial. He dared not say, but clearly implied that, <laughs> to avoid outing themselves, these senior clerics also continually indulged and covered up the serial sexual exploits of pedophile priests. This is why nobody should have been surprised by what Frederick Martel wrote in his 2019 book, In the Closet of the Vatican, Power, Homosexuality, Hypocrisy. Martel highlighted that, and I quote, Some of the most senior clerics in the Roman Catholic Church, who have vociferously attacked homosexuality, are themselves gay. 80% of priests working at the Vatican are gay. End quote. The institutional hypocrisy that represents explains why the Catholic Church invariably showed pedophile priests greater empathy and compassion than it showed their adolescent victims. And no senior cleric did more to reinforce or enforce that hypocrisy than Cardinal Joseph Ratzinger, who fellow clerics rewarded for doing so by electing him Pope Benedict XVI in 2005. Ultimately, though, Martel's insider account merely affirmed my abiding belief that these so-called men of God cannot believe God exists, because they know no God would allow them to perpetrate and cover up the rape and abuse of innocent children in his name, the way they have always done. Of course, Benedict shocked the world in 2013, when he became the first pope in 600 years to abdicate and to burnish his legacy. His defenders and apologists are now framing that as an act of sublime humility. <laughs> Never mind that the prevailing narrative back then was that he did so to escape the increasing public outrage, which unfolding revelations about the church's legacy of child sexual abuse were inciting. Uh, for the record, I don't think the sexual and financial scandals besetting his papacy triggered his abdication. After all, harboring a paedophile priest didn't disqualify him from being elected pope in the first place. So why would any public scandal or personal failing compel him to abdicate? I think his abdication was nothing more than the sensible, responsible, and admirable decision of a tired old man who never bought into the fiction of papal infallibility. Still, the whole world knows of the institutional mess Benedict left behind for Francis to clean up not to mention the unprecedented pickle he posed 
by continuing to live at the Vatican, providing de facto leadership for his traditionalist acolytes to bedevil Francis's progressive papacy. I commented on their awkward cohabitation and co-papacy in Benedict and Francis, Two Popes in a Pickle, on May 14, 2020. To his credit, though, reports are that the humble but shrewd Francis is cleaning up the mess just as he dealt with Emeritus Benedict and his Vatican saboteurs, namely, with amazing grace. And that grace was on full display today, as Francis became the first Pope in church history to preside over funeral services for his predecessor. But I hope it occurred to Benedict to repent for protecting and enabling so many pedophile priests before he reaches the pearly gates. <laughs> you know, just in case. That's it. Thank you for listening. And until the next Talking Eye Pinions, Goodbye.